Welcome to this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. I'm Greg Johnson with Sustana Fiber, and I'm here once again with my co-host, Dr. Marta Pazos. So Marta, it's good seeing you again. And speaking of seeing, did you ever see the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau TV series when you were a kid or watch any of the reruns? Uh, hi, Greg. Yeah, as you know, I grew up on the ocean and I am a, a, a great and an amazing um, lover of the ocean and everything um, about it. I, as a child, I used to watch Jack Cousteau's documentaries and I used to remember, and I remember that I used to think of myself as sailing in the uh, Calypso. So our guest today is is so exciting for me to have her for sure. Um, I think that we are going to have a great conversation. I can't wait to dive into the ocean with a marine biologist. Exactly, Marta. And what better way to explore our Earth's oceans and their critical importance to our planet's health than with our guest today, Dr. Christine Figner, the Director of Science and Education at the Footprint Foundation. Christine is an esteemed marine biologist as well as a passionate conservationist who's received numerous awards for her tireless environmental efforts. In 2018, Time Magazine named Christine a Next Generation Leader. And in 2019, she was the recipient of both the Footprint Ocean Hero Award, as well as Texas A&M University's Texas Sea Grants Inspire to Influence Award. Of all her many noteworthy accomplishments, however, Christine is perhaps best known for her role researching sea turtles in Costa Rica. During the summer of 2015, she shared a heartbreaking video on YouTube that many of us undoubtedly remember of a sea turtle with a plastic straw stuck up its nostril that thankfully was successfully removed. To date, Christine's unforgettable video has been viewed over 100 million times and is largely credited with instilling a renewed commitment around the world to solving the plastics pollution problem that unfortunately continues to impact our oceans. Christine, it's great to see you again. We're grateful for your time today and thank you for visiting with us. Well, thank you, Greg and Marta, so much for having me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about all kinds of sustainability and things. Hi, Christine. Uh, it's so exciting to to meet you and be here with you today. Um, I can't wait to hear more about the oceans from you and from the perspective of not just somebody that is uh, sailing around, but an actual scientist, right? So what, what made you uh, want to become a marine biologist? I guess for me, it is a little bit curious that I did become a marine <laughs> biologist because I did grow up in a small German town that was pretty landlocked. So the next coast was literally hours away. But I got lucky because my parents are huge ocean lovers. And so we did vacation at the ocean pretty much every single time we did go for vacation. So that was my luck. And um, my dad is a German engineer. So he is very, a very matter of fact person and I remember the very first time I was at the ocean I was about <laughs> two years old I think um I was really scared to go into the water because there were you know I could tell there were like little critters swimming under the surface and so it spooked me 
And I guess I was having little tantrums because of that. And my dad would just not have it. But instead of, of um, telling me off, he actually went up to the concession stand and bought me a pair of goggles and said, look, put them on and look underneath the surface. There's really nothing to be scared of. And he was right. So there were all kinds of interesting fish and other things and other critters. And so uh, after that, it was probably more of a problem getting me out of the water because I thought it was so fascinating what I was able to see there. And I mean, I don't know exactly, you know, the procession well, progression of it, but I do know that my dad did foster this interest with, you know, the um, documentaries of, of, of Jacusto and Hans Haas, which is like the Austrian Jacusto. And um, of course, also books and things about those things. And once I started reading, I actually lived precariously through, um, you know, the adventures that other people have had. Jane Goodall actually was one of my big childhood heroes, you know, a woman that went all by herself to Africa to study chimpanzees. And so I think for me, it was pretty early on clear in kindergarten. I mean, my friends say that I even in kindergarten said already that I would like to become an ocean explorer. Um, of course, I didn't know what it meant back at that time that I prob probably would have to study biology for that. But then I also was uh, able to do an internship with one of the um, local ocean aquariums where I lived. So they had um, well marine mammals and um, they had fish and all of that. So it was like my first entrance into this world of, of of ocean, but also science, because there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of biologists that did their thesis there and their dissertations. And so I pretty early on was exposed to this, you know, of how I can even make it happen, if that makes sense. And so I think that was pretty much the last stone that was clear. Okay, I will become a marine biologist. And then I did actually not start out with sea turtles. I loved humpback whales. So my family is big into music. We all play instruments. We did a lot of music when I was little. So I always wanted to study the song of humpback whales. And uh, I was very much into the back then Greenpeace had kind of children's activities. You could like form a green team and dedicate like your time to a cause. And we did actually collect signatures against whaling and those kind of things. So, um, yeah, with that, I kind of had in mind, okay, I want to become a marine biologist. What do I need to do to become a marine biologist? And then everything changed in the end because while I was already in university, I actually had the chance to go to Costa Rica to a sea turtle project here. And that was the first time ever that I saw a nesting sea turtle. And that is when I fell in love with these animals and just thought, wow, this is so incredible. It is also such a... Um, such a close encounter with animals that you usually don't get if you if you work with wild animals, you know. So if you work with whales, I mean, I have actually worked in the meantime with humpback whales. You're usually on a boat far off, you know, you kind of see them in the distance. You might take some photos, you might put a hydrophone in the water. But this like moment of 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 really, you know, I don't know, an hour that this animal is with you on the beach that you're literally able to touch it, you know, to collect data. That's very special about sea turtles. I, I totally agree with you. Let me tell you what, I, I recently fell in love with sea turtles when I first saw them up close and moving and in, in, a, in a Thai community in Hawaii. And eventually I would go there just to look at the turtles, just to see there in, at a distance, right? Because the last thing that I wanted to is to scare them. But just like watching them move and interact with one another was just fascinating. I, I could totally see why you got hooked. And I mean, I always have to 
remind myself that they're actually, you know, very old animals, right? So they have been around for millions and millions of years. So you literally have to think about them almost as dinosaurs. And only recently, really, in the few past hundred years, has it been a problem for them on our earth, right? And the actual, the common denominator for all the problems is us humans. So, yeah, there it is. And there was also my work cut out as a scientist saying, you know what, I do want to study these animals, but I do want to help them at the same time. Sure. And you, and you mentioned, um, you mentioned when you were little, Christine, that you, you were scared of the water. And um, we all know there's a lot of scary things, um, problems affecting our, our oceans today. Um, in your estimation, though, what would you say is the number one problem that's affecting our, our oceans ecosystems and, and what, if anything, is being done to address or correct that problem? First of all, I think a lot of us uh, watched the film Seaspiracy probably in the past year and walked away with the idea that there is only one problem and there's you know one major problem. But actually I talk about the issues that our oceans are facing as the you know the kind of the biblical apocalyptical writers, because there's really not just one problem. We actually have, you know, at the very least, habitat destruction, one of the biggest climate change, pollution, and that may be oil spills, that mean might be fertilizers, that might be plastic, and of course the overexploitation, and that is industrial fishing, but it also is in the case of sea turtles, for example, the direct take of eggs and meat and sea turtle shell. And the thing with those apocalyptical writers is that they are, you know, they're already bad taken by themselves, but they happen to form those absolutely horrible synergies. So if you think about, you know, climate change, what is, you know, what causes climate change? It's, it's you know, fossil fuels, for example. And then if you think about, well, what causes oil spills, right? It's directly connected to how we transport those fossil fuels. And then again, what is plastic made from? It's petroleum, which is a fossil fuel, right? So then again, the other thing is, example, climate change is caused by how much meat we're consuming, right? So that is a direct link. The more meat we're consuming, the more emissions we have. And then if you think about all the, um, you know, the, the chemicals that are ending up in our oceans, they're also directly related to growing feet for those, those animals that we end up eating. So, you know, I am just trying to make examples of that you can see of like how they're all interconnected with each other. Or fishing industry, it's already bad enough industrial but you know then they use plastic fishing nets so it goes into the plastic pollution issue so i i really want people to understand that there is not just one major issue there's several and all of them them have one common denominator and that is us humans right so the big thing that we need to change is really our lifestyle us us of course (laughs) unfortunately yeah speaking of the plastic straws let's go to your (laughs) video and i actually uh, I have a, a story to tell you. When I first started uh, working at the Coca-Cola company, I was put on charge of uh, finding an alternative for the issue with the cups and straws, in fact. And my first presentation had a link to your video, to your uh, sea turtle with a plastic straw on its nostril. And I remember watching it and seriously, like in tears, it, it, it made me tear up and I put it on and I look around the room and everybody's like containing their tears, you know, because it is it's, it's charged with emotion. Right. So so t- tell us what 
what it was for you, you know, like we see it, we are, we are these specters, we get, we get very emotional with it, but tell us what, how was it from your perspective and how do you feel about the movement it created? Because it created for the first time uh, a kind of awareness, awareness that we didn't have before. Yeah, it, it wasn't kind of, you know, sometimes there's certain things that are almost serendipitous in life. It was very strange. So because we, you know, I, I was collecting data for my PhD at this point, and I had just met up with a friend that I hadn't seen in a while. And we actually, before we went on the boat, because I had been out sampling for already a few weeks, and he wanted to join us just for this one day. And so we met up the night before in a restaurant. And because we were so excited to see each other, you know, we didn't pay much attention to the waiter. And the waiter brought us both our drink with straws. And we had already had the habit of, you know, saying no straw because it's plastic. And I mean, if you've been working with sea turtles, you already have a certain aversion against plastic because you literally go beach cleaning every single week at the very least, if not every single day, just to take it out of the environment. And I remember then when the straws came, we actually started discussing. It's like, oh man, this is such a useless object. You know, who even came up with straws and why do why do we need to get it even without being asked? And then the next morning we were on the boat and um, I had I, I was sampling on mating couples. And so it was already a little bit advanced in the day and we had um, one of our last couples on board. And since he's interested in the, you know, the actobine, so the little critters that live on the turtle. So every time I was done with my sampling, he actually just kind of collected everything that was growing or crawling on the turtle. And he did the same thing this time. The only time it was that the turtle had something funny encrusted in its nose. Uh, we didn't know what it was. So we actually thought it was a barnacle. And so I was just, you know, because it was kind of a funny extraction at that point. I said, like, you know what? I'm done with sampling. I'm just going to grab my camera and I'm going to film you while you're getting this booger out of the turtle's nose, right? And so while I'm filming and he's pulling, this object becomes longer and longer. So he thinks, oh, that might be a tube worm, right? Or something longer than definitely a barnacle. And at one point, for me in the camera lens, it became very obvious that it had these black stripes. And I kept on like immediately this image of a straw kept popping up. And I, I remember I'm kind of rambling in the background, but you can, if you're listening to it, you can actually just, like hear me saying, that almost looks like a straw. The things that we have in Germany, they have those stripes. And then um, we decided, well, we don't know what the material is. So we cut yeah. off a piece. And actually one of my local assistants took it and bid on it because she's like, well, what material is it? And he's like, well, that's plastic. And I was like, are you freaking telling me that this is a plastic straw and a turtle's nose? Like, what the hell? And I mean, even though plastic has been, you know, a sad byline of our work, that was definitely the first time that we've ever found it lodged in a turtle's nose. And I just remember then after we removed it and we released him back into the water, we were driving back to shore. And I mean, that's that's a few hours. So everybody usually kind of, you know, is excited if it was a good field day. But on that boat ride, everybody was silent. And it was just like shaking their heads. And it was like, what the hell did just happen? Like, did we really just find a plastic straw in a turtle's nose? And that is kind of how we felt about it. I think it was, you know, something unique um, but also made it so visually clear that even such a small item that could have been used by any of us, right? I mean, it could have been our straw that we just used the night before. 
It could have been, you know, a straw that maybe came from a children's birthday party or else somehow found its way into the ocean, into the nose of that turtle and caused so much pain and suffering. And I mean, who knows how long it has been there already um, because it looked pretty encrusted. And I mean, the sense of smell is one of the most important senses for sea turtles. Like how did it impair him even, you know, in his everyday life? So there were so many things, I think, that we kind of ran through our heads. And I mean, for us, it was pretty early on clear that we wanted to share it just to show at least the people. I mean, we didn't think about it going viral, right? It was more about, well, we have people that follow our work and we always talk about how bad plastic is, but usually we don't really have those, you know, videographic evidences because usually if I'm the one doing something, I don't have the hands free to film anything. And usually I'm also... If it's between helping an animal or filming, I usually decide it's definitely more important to help the animal than filming the whole thing, right? So that was kind of the the, the very unique thing that we had video. And then, of course, it kind of blew up and it gave us this incredible platform to talk about all those issues, right? Of why plastic is bad and why single-use plastic is so bad. And that the straw is really only the symbol of all the plastic that we're using and abusing, really, because we have this miracle material that is made for eternity that is you know helping us so much in medical advances and technological advances but for some reason we have kind of started using it out of context right out of or like kind of just to support our always increasingly fast becoming lifestyle of of consumption right it's 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 like this whole mess that it was symbolic for and so we were very happy when when it kind of started this movement, but we also became very frustrated that it was, again, taken out of context, that people made it only about the straw, which it was never only about the straw. The straw is just one little part of the problem, right? It's supposed to be, you know, giving people an idea of where they can start to even eliminate unnecessary plastics, but it's not meant to be the end of it all right it's it's really kind of you know the motivation to because i feel this problem is so overwhelming if you think about all the plastics everywhere like where do you even start stopping using it right and i think a lot of people get a little bit bummed out by it and rather than rather than than kind of like thinking about or through the problem themselves they kind of like ah, i'd rather not even touch it but I think with that, we gave them an entrance of saying, okay, start with a straw. And once you start even thinking about it, it becomes very clear what other things there might be that you could also phase out of your life, right? Yeah. So it was kind of like the straw that broke the turtle's back, <laughs> right? Like, you know that there was a lot of issues already happening, but seeing it so tangible and real, mass, it was surreal, right? In a way, like you're saying, and... And I can only imagine, you know that the problem is there, but unfortunately, you know, um, we tend to turn the other way when we just hear about it. But when you see it, it's when it really becomes that that surreal reality, right? Definitely. Um, Christine, as you know, Sustana produces a lot of recycled fiber that's used for all kinds of sustainable food and beverage packaging from paper cups and carry-out containers to sandwich wraps and even microwavable sleeves. But um, in getting back to plastic straws um, and your your sea turtle video, I know 
you and and your team persuaded a lot of different brands, um, including McDonald's and Starbucks, to largely eliminate their plastic straws, um, which which has been great. Um, that said, though, do you see other brands um, in in the quick serve restaurant fast food space also taking steps to eliminate not only plastics but the single use plastics that that seem to be so prevalent that I, I think we're all kind of concerned about. So I feel it's a little bit country dependent and maybe in the U.S. state dependent of like how much change I have seen. So I feel I'm from Germany. So last time I was there, I hadn't been in seven years and then I came back in September. And I have to say, I was absolutely impressed with how little plastic there is nowadays. And I think even growing up, and I mean, I'm in my 30s now, there was never a time in Germany that we didn't have to pay for a plastic bag, right, at the grocery store. And in fact, people were actually giving you a stink eye if you had to buy a plastic bag because you forgot your reusable bag. You know, and so this is a cultural thing. And even here in Costa Rica, which is considered, you know, still a developing country, I feel culturally it is so much more advanced than the U.S. in the sense of like environmental thinking and consumption. Um, so I don't know. I think it is a lot of times when you can see consumer demands in certain states that you can then see that grocery stores are following. But even in the time when I lived there, I could still see actually brands switching from paper-based packaging to plastic, where I was just thinking, okay, you guys are a little bit tone deaf, right? I mean, the world is screaming less plastic. You like advertising your new PET bottle instead of the glass bottle that you used before. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want to see the positive, right. but I sometimes also feel it's not always, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing going on. There's always, I feel especially the big brands, I think always try to get away quick and cheap and not really making the change if they don't have to. Sure. So I will see how that plays out in the future. You mentioned plastic bags. I, I recently read a, a report from the United uh, Nations that said that there's 5 trillion bags used a year worldwide, uh, every year around the world. And I have also heard that plastic bags are extremely attractive to sea turtles because the sea turtles perceive them to be jellyfish and uh, tend to eat them. And then, of course, you know, sea marine birds uh, like seagulls and herons and egrets also get entangled with them. Do you see plastic bags um, as, as still a big problem, even though I know a lot of people are switching more and more to paper oh, bags? Yeah. I mean, especially in, in, in developing countries, uh, so Costa Rica is just moving away from it. But, you know, um, I don't know. I was in Colombia not long ago uh, and I went into this very pretty much deserted, like literally a desert area where there's nobody living except of some, you know, indigenous people. And they have cacti standing there. And the cacti are literally covered in plastic bags like Christmas Lametta. Just the wind blows them all there. And I mean, you go into a store... <sighs> And you just get those flimsy, small plastic bags. So I, I can definitely see how in Asia, Africa, South America, it is still massively used. And as a fun fact, or not so fun, but as a fact, one of the first um, documentations of sea turtles ingesting plastic was in leather bags, a plastic bag. And that was back in the 60s and 70s. 
So that is as long as we have that problem already of mm. plastic ingestion in sea turtles, you know? So it's not a new thing. It pretty much with the start of us using plastic for those applications, we also already had the problem of it ending up in the ocean and endangering sea life. And the newest data is showing that it's not only that a plastic bag looks like jellyfish, but plastic actually accumulates a biofilm that smells attractive to sea turtles. So they did a study in loggerhead turtles. And if the plastic wow. has been in the ocean environment for long enough, that plastic itself smells of food. So it's not so much visually, but again, the sense of smell in turtles is important. So they actually think it is something yummy because it smells yummy. So that is actually more worrisome, I think. Yeah, because they, they don't, I mean, at the end of the day, like you mentioned before, the smell is probably one of the, the most important of their senses, right? They are not... They don't see all that well, yeah. right? So yeah, it's probably more that that makes so much sense. To to be honest, I I just learned mm -hmm. something fascinating. Another another issue that we have been made recently aware of uh, was the issue of the ghost nets, right? That you mentioned before those plastic nets for fishing that are accidentally or not left behind in the oceans, right? And and those definitely pose a problem. So the, the issue with the straw, from, from what I've seen and from what I'm hearing from you, is minimal compared to some other foreign plastic objects in the ocean, right? Can you elaborate on the issue with ghost nets as well as the other uh, objects that you're seeing? out there when you go diving yeah i mean so i think a study by greenpeace is estimating that about 20 percent of our plastic in the ocean is discarded fishing nets so that means that is a big portion but it's also not the majority right so the other one is a big mix and quite honestly that makes it so difficult sometimes to say it's this one object that is bad and i much rather talk about plastic as being a problem right because what do all those objects have in common it's the material and so because we have seen literally, you know, turtles getting stuck in car tires, for example, or a baby turtle that got stuck, who knows how, into a PET bottle. Is it something that happens, yeah. you know, all the time? Probably not. But accumulatively, you know, you see it way too often that there is some kind of weird interaction between plastic and animals. I mean, that's the reason that it's called a ghost net, because it, it seems almost invisible to animals. And... Since it has nobody that is responsible for it, right? It's it's just drifting there by itself. That means anything that will get entangled in it will not be helped, right? So that's the other problem. Because if you have a net that is still managed by a fishing fleet, at least there is the hope that maybe there is somebody going to check for the catch and maybe it's going to release the animals that are not target species. In the case of the ghost nets, that is not the case. And the ghost nets also, if you, I don't know if you even know the dimensions of industrial fishing gear, but I mean, if we're talking, for example, gill nets or long lines, we're not talking about a few hundred of meters like the artisanal fishermen are using, but we're talking about kilometers or miles, if you want to do it in the US American um, system, it's miles of that. And so if you think about that getting lost, right? Nobody checking it and that getting lost. I mean, that doesn't catch the sea turtles that catches 
everything. I don't know if I would like to ingest a credit card's worth of plastic per week, right? And which it accumulates to like pretty much half of my body's weight at the end of my life. Uh, that's kind of eerie, you know, to, to think about it like that. Um, tell us how you feel about the ingestion of microplastics, not only by us, right? But you are so close to marine biology, uh, marine fauna, that you can also uh, tell us what your perspective is, not only by uh, in terms of ingestion by humans, but also by those animals. And how do you th how do you think that we can work on this microplastic situation? I actually, you know, I, I, I gave it a crack one time and I'm like, this is this is right now with the technology that we currently have, not something that we can solve. Right. Let us tell us what your take on it on that is. Yeah, first of all, I mean, I as a scientist do not tend to be hysterical about this issue, but I have to say the science speaks for itself. So we know already more and more about the problems of microplastics on human health. So we know that the additives that are added to plastic manufacturing, so because you want to have, you know, the plastic to be more flexible, let's talk about, you know, phthalates and BPAs and all of that jazz, it's endocrine disrupting, right? So it, it messes with our hormones. So we already see in humans problems with fertility and, and, and other things. And we probably also have that in our you know in our animals as well that live somehow exposed to those substances so let's think about amphibians and, and reptiles and all of those that are very sensitive to those substances then just recently we get you know more and more evidence about that we're not only ingesting plastic but that pl microplastic is in our blood already that it is in our in our even our placentas of pregnant women and that microplastics probably causes harm to our cells. And so these are the things that I find are very scary because we never thought about it. We didn't even really know that microplastic was a thing. So now we only started to investigate those things and we're only looking at the tip of the iceberg. So I would say in the next 10 years, we probably will have more and more evidence of what plastic really does to human health. And probably we will find, I mean, that's just an intelligent guess, but that a lot of our now, now nowadays issues, right? The increases in cancers that we find, autoimmune diseases, allergies, mental health as well. That is what we already know is all connected to our gut microbiome will probably be affected by plastic ingestion as well. And so, I mean, there is very little doubt in my mind that it also is causing harm to the animals that are ingesting plastic. In fact, there was a study that has found that, you know, even though you might not die from ingesting small pieces of plastic in sea turtles, if you are ingesting a certain quantity of plastic, your survival probability decreases. Right. And that is just really, like I said, this is only the beginning of us understanding of how bad microplastics are. And so when we're debating of like how, because first of all, where do where does the microplastic that we're ingesting is coming from? So most of us is actually in our water. So it's in our tap water and it's even worse in bottled water on anything that we are storing, food especially that we're storing and heating in, in, in plastic containers. And then the next thing is, um, of course, you know, we have tire abrasion, but we also have our synthetic clothing. So synthetic clothing is actually one of the major 
microplastic release site. So every time you wash your clothes, that goes straight into our sewage. Our sewage facilities or sewage treatment facilities are unable pretty much to filter it out. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to ask you one more question. Um, I was taking a look at uh, the foundation's website and I saw something that was referred to as plogging. And I, I know it sounds kind of ominous, like what uh, Marta was just asking you about, but I think it's a lot more fun than that. Could you tell us a little bit about what plogging is and um, how it actually helps the environment? Yeah, so plogging, the word itself actually, I think, stems from Swedish. But the idea is pretty much that you pluck and jog. <laughs> plugging as in like uh, collecting things or picking up things from the from the floor while you're jogging. So it is a way, I mean, we've been trying to encourage people to do something um, in the direction of cleanups or else even during the pandemic. So it was, you know, a little bit about thinking about ways of how you as an individual, rather than going out in a group can do something. And a lot of people go jogging. I think running is kind of a national sport, I feel. And so instead of just going running, what you do is you pretty much run. And but every time you see a piece of plastic, you pick it up. And so after, I don't know, you run a half an hour or an hour, you actually collect a good amount of plastic on your way. And that means um, you do something good for the environment. And at the same time, you also uh, exercise, right? So that was the whole idea behind it. And we hope to just kind of, you know, inspire people to think more of fun ways to integrate environmental friendly actions in their everyday lives and routines. Christine, thank you again for your time today. Uh, Marta and I, uh, I, I feel like we took a class in oceanography today. So it's been so wonderful speaking with you, a great pleasure and um, keep on keeping on and what you're doing to help our oceans, okay? Yeah, thank you so much, Christine. I am so delighted to have heard from you. Just like uh, like Greg mentioned, it's it's being a uh, it's like it's been like diving into the ocean, saving a turtle, and come back feeling a lot better about it, and how much more work we still have ahead of us. So thank you for doing a phenomenal part on the work that needs to be done. Well, thank you so much for having me, and also sharing. Well, having so many interesting questions, so I can nerd out about sea turtles. Thanks again for joining us for this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. We look forward to seeing you next month, but in the meantime, if you would like more information, please be sure to visit sustanafiber.com. And don't forget to subscribe and please give us a good rating and a good review. We want to keep bringing this to you and that is the best 